Hey guys, uh, thanks, thanks all for coming. Uh, I think it's, it's great to see all of you here. I know there are a lot of other sessions going on, but you took the time to attend this session. Just to be clear, uh, the session is AIM 312, uh, Predict Future Business Outcomes Using Amazon Forecast. My name is Rohit. Uh, I'm the product lead for the uh, Forecast service. Uh, with me is also Chris, sitting right at the corner, who is our uh, lead SA for the service. And then we also have Sean, who's the director for supply chain data analytics at Thermo Fisher for LSG. Uh, so he'll talk about their customer journey as well using Amazon Forecast. So I guess diving right in, uh, this would be the rough agenda for our session. So we'll, we'll kind, of lay the, kind of lay the foundations of you know, why forecasting is important. Uh, I guess for most of you, it's probably clear, but just you know, laying the foundation would be useful. Then we'll talk about the overview of the Amazon forecast service. So we'll go into a little detail as to what a typical workflow looks like, how you set up your, uh, you know, your use case in the, in the service. Then after that, I'll hand it over to uh, Chris. Uh, Chris will go through in a little detail in terms of the algorithms that are used, both the statistical algorithms as well as the deep learning approach that we support on our service. Uh, then he'll also talk about how you can evaluate your service, uh, sorry, evaluate your model, what metrics you should be looking for, how to think about setting up backtesting, backtest windows, so he'll go into some detail. Then we'll hand it over to Sean, and Sean will talk about a use case uh, where Thermo Fisher is right now you know, uh, you know, test, testing our service, and they've got a lot of favorable results, and he's going to compare our results vis-a-vis -vis their existing uh, system that they're using in-house. And it's, a, it's kind of a supply chain inventory management use case. And then if uh, we have some time, uh, we'll talk about a little bit about how you implement it in production, talk about uh, a rough architecture uh, in terms of how the, it could be implemented in a production setup, and then we leave some time for uh, Q&A and uh, you know, just a general wrap-up. So I guess uh, diving straight in. So I guess uh, with forecasting, uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's kind of uh, the science of predicting the future based on historical data. And all forecasts are generally wrong. But the, but the main focus of any service or a forecasting service is you know, trying to be as accurate as possible. So you can never be 100% accurate, but the, gain, the, the aim is to get it as accurate as possible. And there are, uh, there are a couple of challenges with forecasting in general. So one is under forecasting, where you kind of miss customer demand or you don't meet a customer promise that can lead to lost opportunity. And if you over forecast, you run into the problem where you, know, you have too much wasted resources. Uh, you kind of, if your cost of capital is high, it can be very punitive for a business, especially a you know, startup or a, or a small to medium-sized business. So improving your forecast accuracy in general, uh, even, even a small increase, like 100, you know, a 1% or a 5%, it doesn't have to be a huge magnitude of increase. We've seen that that can be hugely beneficial because any savings in improving your forecast accuracy directly goes into your bottom line. So hence, forecasting is very critical for any business. In terms of use cases uh, and you know, how we think of forecasting in general, um, if you look around your, you know, if you just look around in general, you can see forecasting use cases all over the place. But uh, within the service, we think of certain key buckets that we think are critical for forecasting in general, or these are our core use cases. So one is inventory planning. Uh, so this is where I think Sean is going to spend a lot of time talking about the use case at Thermo Fisher and how our service was used. Uh, uh, next is workforce planning. I would extend workforce planning more into a resource planning scenario. So it's not just 
uh, planning your workforce. So the most common use case is you know, managing your flexible workforce. Uh, for example, if you have uh, like a, a call center, if you have call volume based on, you know, you have past call volume, you can use it to project future call volume and then staff appropriately to pick up your calls. Um, and then also in the virtual realm, you can kind of provision cloud infrastructure based on historical demand. So for example, if you have to provision easy to resources, for example, you can use historical demand and then you know, uh, forecast what your future demand might be. So workforce can be kind of extended to more of a resource planning use case. The next is capacity planning. So here, uh, the key use case I would talk about is product demand forecasting. So product demand forecasting takes you know, many shapes and forms. So the most common use case in, in a retail scenario is uh, you know, product forecasting at the SKU level for any given store. Uh, you can also think about energy demand forecasting as a public utility. So you can extend that to demand forecasting across the board. And the last piece is financial planning. So you know, uh, financial metrics forecasting, so revenue forecasting, cash flow forecasting. So I would say these are the core domains, but as you can imagine, there are a whole bunch of you know, other, you know, other use cases that you can imagine that are you know, forecasting related. So I guess just a little bit of historical perspective as you know, why as Amazon we thought, or as AWS in particular, we thought building a forecast service uh, would make sense and would be highly beneficial to our customers. Uh, that's because forecasting is critical for uh, anything that Amazon does, uh, you know, from workforce planning uh, to our retail, uh, you know, to our retail arm. Forecasting is critical and that's how we have grown our business. And as an example here, uh, forecasting on Amazon.com is very critical because one, we have to f forecast for 400 million SKUs, which is an insanely high number of SKUs. Uh, we have to also keep the low price uh, you know, promise that we've given to our customers, as well as maintain fast delivery with the prime promise. So all of that requires a highly accurate forecasting, ensuring the right amount of product is located in the right warehouses. And so since we have built some expertise in this space, uh, you know, we, we looked at forecast as a service to externalize that expertise. So just the kind of the forecasting process, uh, this is like just a high-level mental model as to how you think of forecasting in general. So the key piece is you need good data, uh, and you need data that's, uh, that's got some kind of historical perspective. So you can't start with just a few points of historical data. So ideally, you need, you need some kind of historical data, so at least like a few months or a year's worth of data. Essentially, you need at least three columns of data. You need a timestamp uh, and an item. Here, an item is a catch-all phrase, so an item could be a skew. An item could be a customer, a specific customer. An item could be a department. In, in an organization if you're doing revenue forecasting. So item could take many shapes and forms. And then a value. A value is pretty much uh, kind of you know, projecting things like demand uh, or the number of calls, et cetera. And then once, once you have that data set, you then have to identify trends. Uh, so here is where I think Chris is going to talk about the different methods that you can use. So there are statistical approaches, deep learning approaches. And hopefully, once you identify those trends, those trends kind of stick on to the future as well. And that's what you do in the, uh, in the last way of projecting forward. So, so now a kind of a brief overview of the service in general. Uh, so before that, I'll just kind of set the stage in terms of how we think of the service. So uh, at AWS, we think of the ML stack uh, in three layers. At the bottommost layer are you know, core infrastructure and frameworks. Uh, the middle layer is uh, SageMaker, where folks or you know, research scientists build custom models and deploy them. And the top layer is the AI service, which is a managed service, uh, which, is, uh, which is basically more for folks who are not that tech savvy, who don't have you know, that much of experience in ML or deep learning. Uh, and it's more suited for like, you know, uh, like a 
a business-minded person and let's so for it, you know, you don't have to have a lot of tech jobs to use those services. So in particular, if you, talk, you just think about uh, uh, Amazon Forecast and how it sits in this pyramid, at the very bottom, uh, we have the Gluon time series, which is a base level framework. And uh, you know, since our lead scientist, Bernie Sunny, I'll use a car analogy that we've used often to explain this setup. So if you think of, uh, if you use a car analogy, so Gluon TS is basically a framework which gives you a bunch of parts. So think of a piston or, you know, or a frame, but you, you as a scientist have to build it all together and put it together to you know, make it a production-worthy model. SageMaker is, you can think of it as like a highly functional engine, but you're still missing all the other components. And Amazon Forecast is basically that full-fledged car which is turnkey and you can just drive off the lot. So basically, if you go from top to bottom, from the, you know, from the uh, bottom of the stack to the top, the amount of effort that would take you at the bottom is months, and with using Forecast, that could be reduced to hours. And also, if you look at the kind of uh, you know, user that the service is more, more, you know, more built for, is more of a business-oriented person. And as you go down the stack, it's more research-oriented. So a little bit about uh, forecast in general. So what are the advantages of forecast? So one, it's a fully managed service. So as long as your data resides in S3, we can automatically set up the data pipeline. Uh, we do all the training uh, and, the, and the prediction and the model hosting as well. Uh, it's a fairly uh, accurate service, so we have seen uh, upwards of 50% improvements in accuracy, and the way we define this is we compare how our service performs with, uh, with known data sets uh, and then compare it with, known, uh, with uh, you know, the most uh, robust open source statistical methods. Uh, and in most cases, I, I think I mentioned in the beginning, 50% is not really a requirement, like we have seen customers with even improvements of 2% or 5%, the ROI is very clear because it flows straight into your bottom line. The service is easy to use, so you don't need any deep learning experience. And the final piece is, uh, it's your data, so the data is all private. Uh, you can you know, encrypt it with using the KMS service. And also another uh, piece is the models are custom. So unlike other AI services that use pre-trained models, all the models here are built particularly using your data set. So, uh, so all the models are custom built, and there's no sharing of models across customers. So diving in, uh, so in order to use the service, uh, you, need, uh, you need data, as we talked about, and there are three data sets that the service uh, can support. And each of them uh, has its own purpose, and one is a required data set. So the target time series uh, right at the top is, uh, is what is required, and here you need at least three columns of data, which is uh, one being the timestamp, the other being the item identifier that we talked about in the past, and then the third being demand or sales. The other way that the uh, target time series can extend is, you know, it, it might not be the case that you're just trying to, uh, you know, determine or forecast demand at the item level. It could be things like item in a given store or item in a, from a given warehouse at a given store. So you can, you can kind of expand, uh, you know, the, the, the item column to add additional identifiers. So that's, that's all achieved in the target time series. The next two uh, uh, data sets are both optional. One is the related time series, and the other is the item metadata. So I'll start with the related time series. So basically, the related time series is any other time-varying data that probably has an impact on your forecast. So common examples are price, uh, promotion, uh, or weather. And in most cases, it's some transformation of price, promotion, or weather. So it's not just price. It could be delta change in price. It could be log price. So these are all things that can have an impact on your, uh, on your forecast, and they're time-varying in nature. So those all are incorporated in the related time series. Uh, the uh, the uh, third data set here is the metadata. 
and this actually works only with our deep learning approach. Uh, so this is basically categorical or metadata that can, uh, can, that can have some value. So common examples are uh, things that can be used to bucketize your items. So it could be things like you know, department or genre or color. And where, it, uh, where it's uh, you know, one strong use case for using something like an uh, item metadata is if you had to like, you know, forecast demand for products that had no prior history. So you use this, this labeling for you know, past historical data that you already have, and then use these identifiers to like, uh, you know, export onto a new, new item, which might share certain attributes with you know, items from the past, and then generate a forecast. Uh, so that's with the data set. So going into the service, so once you have the three uh, data set types that we talked about, it then, uh, uh, you then feed that into Amazon Forecast. Uh, within the forecast service, we also support some built-in data sets. Uh, currently, we support holidays uh, for a few countries. Uh, and then we'll go into detail how the uh, entire workflow inside of forecast works. So in forecast, you have the option of uh, either using AutoML, where Amazon makes a choice as to what the best algorithm was for a particular data, or you can choose an algorithm by, uh, you know, by yourself. So right now, we support five algorithms. Uh, three are open source implementations, and two are uh, proprietary to Amazon, including the deep learning approach. And the way the data can be ingested is essentially uh, you can either query it using our query API, or you can run an export job, which essentially dumps a CSV file with, uh, with all the forecasts in a secure S3 location of your choice. So if you, if you just look under the hood a little bit, this is kind of the end-to-end -end workflow uh, for Amazon forecasts. And I've tried to kind of bucket, bucket them into the uh, critical APIs that you interact with in our service. So the first step is basically uh, you know, uh, creating the data set and importing the data. So that all resides in the create data set uh, API. So this, is, uh, you know, this requires some kind of, it's, it's, it's a little bit manual where you have to load in data, you have to establish it in S3, and it has to be in a, a CSV format. But once all that is uh, true, then the data can be easily ported over into the service. The next step is uh, the create predictor. So this is the heart of the system. Uh, so this is basically the step where, uh, the, uh, where we split the data into a, in, from a, uh, into a training and a test set. And then we use the test set to evaluate how good the model is. And this is also the step where you make the selection in terms of model generation, whether you want to use AutoML. So with AutoML, uh, Amazon has a predefined objective function that we optimize towards and then choose the algorithm or the model that best met that optimization function. Or you can select your own, uh, own algorithm uh, 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 as another option. So both options are available in Create Predictor. And this is also the step where you can override hyperparameters. So, uh, so we have some defaults for all the algorithm approaches, but you can also uh, override them and set, you know, set your own values for the hyperparameters. So here there's a, a fair level of iteration that happens because once you, uh, you know, do the model training, evaluate the metrics, uh, the metrics may or may not meet your needs. So you might go back to the create data set step where you might add additional uh, features, uh, manual features, if you so choose, and do some level of iteration. You might also change the algorithm that you, that you, you, know, you want to go with. Uh, so you might test. So there's a, uh, some level of testing that happens in this step. And in, when, you, when you start your proof of concept, these two APIs or these two steps is where you, you spend you know, most of your time. 
Once this is done, then the next two steps are fairly seamless. So the last next step is create forecast, which is basically an API that hosts your model. Uh, we do one final training pass because in create predictor, we had split the data into a training and test set to do the evaluation. But here we train a model on the entire data set and we host the model, which can then be used for inferencing. And the way you ingest the data is by using the query API where you can, uh, you can, you can run a query API either through the console or through the CLI interface or run a create forecast export job which dumps a CSV file with all the data. So in terms of uh, you know, what the visualization, for example, looks on our uh, console dashboard, so, uh, so you can see the probabilistic forecast uh, generated in the dashboard. And also just recently in the past couple of weeks, uh, we also expanded the ability where now you can generate a forecast at any quantile. So you can pick a number between 1 and 99, and you can generate like a P10 forecast or a P99 forecast or a P55 forecast. So all of that is supported. And then I think we talked about how the forecast can be retrieved and how you can export the forecast as well. Finally, uh, Amazon Forecast does a pretty good job of handling uh, tricky scenarios. So it can, so there's a seamless way to account for missing values, which is a very common use case, uh, co so not a use case, common scenario with uh, forecasting in general, where there's a lot of sparsity. So we have some missing value logic that can account for that. We can also account for cold starts, so that's basically generating forecasts for new products. So I think we talked about a little bit how the setup would be that would require using the item metadata data set and using our deep learning approach. Uh, and we also have a notebook established to go through those steps. And then it also accounts for things that you would expect, things like irregular se seasonality, spiky data, and you can also do sensitivity analysis or what-if analysis uh, using you know, multiple versions of the create predictor. Uh, just a quick, uh, uh, quick touch base on the, on the pricing aspect. So it's a pay-as-you-go pricing model, and it's uh, incredibly cheap if you think of the value that the service offers. So uh, we charge uh, 60 cents for every 1,000 forecasts. Uh, the data storage is uh, you know, around 8 cents per gig. And the training time is uh, 24 cents. So training time is more of machine time, so it's not exactly the training time it took, took you to run a job. So, so it, it might not exactly match uh, you know, run time, actual runtime. Um, and the general rule of thumb that I've seen from customers using the service is uh, when once you're in production, you spend anywhere between 1% to 2% of your total cost on data uh, ingestion, around uh, 20 to 30% on, on training time, and the balance 70% is on your inference. That's where you spend most of your money. And then when you're running the POCs, it's slightly flipped, where you'll be spending 60 to 70% of your uh, total outlay on training time and the balance uh, in the inference term. So I think with that, I'll hand it over to Chris. I think Chris will give a deep dive on the algorithms that power Amazon Forecast, as well as the deep learning approach. Afternoon, everyone. Uh, so I'm Chris King. I'm the solution architect supporting uh, Rohit's product here, Amazon Forecast. So I've got to spend most of this year interacting with a large number of customers, having them evaluate, um, probably at this point, like a countless number of POCs, and then seeing it brought into production uh, for many of our other customers. So what we're going to do now is take a quick dive through many of the algorithms, see how they interplay, where they're appropriate, and then get off to a customer story. 
Uh, so at the very beginning, uh, we start with kind of the gold standard algorithm of ARIMA. Uh, if you've done time series forecasting before, this is the same ARIMA that you're familiar with in the R package. Uh, we're actually reporting it in, we're running it for you. Um, and ARIMA works really, really well when you start to have a very base amount of data. You're not really concerned about seasonality. Um, it's kind of, you know, just a really good workhorse to get started. Um, and then from ARIMA, one of the normal problems is you have to create a unique ARIMA model for every item that you're predicting. In our case, what we're actually doing with the service is we, behind the scenes, will generate those for you. They'll be managed as one collection, and whenever you make your query, we swap to which model is appropriate. Another model, uh, kind of in a similar vein, is exponential smoothing. Uh, exponential smoothing is a really interesting model in that it's also traditionally statistical, uh, very you know, standard implementation of this. Um, it works for roughly the same size of data, uh, but you may have scenarios where seasonality starts to be important and you want to find a statistical approach to get an answer. And so ETS is a great uh, platform for selecting that, learning a little bit more information where seasonality starts to play, uh, but again, for relatively small data sets, um, and it's just you know, a pretty solid baseline. Moving forward to the very last uh, baseline algorithm, we have NPTS, or non-parametric time series. Um, NPTS has some interesting properties. If you find yourself seeing a data set with just a large number of zeros, something that you know, your products have highly irregular, very spiky demands, uh, NPTS is actually the recommended approach for getting a forecast out of those, and excels where the other approaches would start to backfill with kind of nonsense from this irregular demand curve. However, uh, you know, this is kind of ancestral uh, forecasting technology. Often you want to go a little bit deeper and start to incorporate more sophisticated approaches that can learn um, from other items. So up to this point, every one of these algorithms can only learn at once from the singular item, uh, and it creates a unique model for that. It's not inferring any additional logic to the other items. Uh, to get started with that, we actually take a look at implementing Facebook's profit. Uh, again, this is the standard implementation from the Python package brought over. Uh, and from this, you actually start to have the ability to have a little bit of impact from one item impacting the other time series, but not as well vet or vetted as we'll see in deep AR. Uh, but also the ability to put in related time series data. So if you're thinking about what if scenarios where you wanna have, let's say, a price or promotion impact, you feed that in historically, you'll also be in a scenario where you'll feed that in for the future values and be able to see the overall impact on your forecast. Um, profit is really where you get started with that, and profit tends to shine when you have a little bit more data as well. So when you're thinking about having hourly or daily data and going back you know, 100 to 500 time series measurements, profit really starts to shine and pick up there. Uh, and then lastly, the, the main workhorse and kind of like the shining star of the service is DeepAR+. Uh, this is our own neural network implementation for time series, uh, significantly more advanced than any of the other approaches, and it has the benefit of, in this case, one model is created for all of the time series, so it's not one-to-one -one anymore, it's just one global model. And the one global model has the ability to gain insights from all the other items that are within the data set, um, and then it tends to be significantly more outperforming. So that item level, item level metadata that Rohit mentioned earlier, that is where DeepAR starts to establish you know, more explicit connections between your items, and it can start to understand you know, this might be a leading indicator or a lagging indicator of other behavior. Uh, so again, DeepAR, you know, it, this is honestly like one of the biggest used algorithms inside the dot-com business for mission-critical decisions. Uh, so one of the features of forecasting is democratizing that access we have for our own science tools, bringing those to customers. DeepAR is probably the best example of that. Um, and you can literally leverage it using the exact same model approaches that we do have internally. 
Um, but classic form, uh, forecasting techniques, uh, again, tend to fit that one model, which is problematic. It's really hard to learn from those. Again, I want to reiterate that having this global model and being able to see the patterns and interactions with the data is what's enabling this to be more performant. Um, and you can train it um, over you know, extended related time series as well. Uh, so it, it is really popular, uh, to Rohit's point earlier, about this iterative loop of versus training versus um, the actual inference. In POCs, it's really common that you'll be experimenting with lots of related data, running imports, just going through that loop constantly, and seeing like, how the different what-if scenarios shake out. Uh, in this case, uh, DeepAR is going to allow you to do that significantly faster and with a lot more variety in the data you're providing. Uh, if we want to take a look at how this actually approaches uh, for you know, different results, uh, so not only are you learning over this entire set of information, you can think about different historical curves that you're feeding in. Uh, so with DeepAR, we have a probabilistic forecast. So you can see kind of the, the very top of this blue line uh, is actually our P90 prediction. The bottom of that is the P10. Um, and there's a harder to see, but blue line kind of through the middle, which is our P50. Uh, but there are three distinct use cases here. Uh, one where we start to have kind of a very little demand kind of bobbing up and down. Uh, and then we do actually anticipate that there's going to be a spike. Um, that spike probably was indicated by some other time series behavior that was learned. Uh, here we can see it's actually a adapting to that. Um, in the other case, we see where we have a much more spiky scenario up front. Again, we're learning from all the data before the vertical uh, line there, and we're able to like, learn from that and again trail you know, very quickly with what the actual demand is. Um, where things get really interesting though, and it's uh, unfortunately looks like it was, was not charted on this, is when we start to think about how do we do a cold start. Uh, so with deep AR plus, again, you're providing all that item metadata. We have a deep understanding of how one item is in similar ways connected to another and how to do forecast for that. Um, what we can then do is just specify net new item metadata with no historical information, um, and we can decide to add related time series or not. The service will look, organically figure out where those items blend to kind of make a prediction for this item, and then allows you to generate a forecast with actually no history prior. Um, so it's a pretty powerful scenario for that as well, or tool for that. But once you're done, you're gonna kinda need to evaluate this and really understand the performance of the tool. Uh, so we've mentioned quantiles a few times, um, but the goal here is we wanna make sure that we're not just giving a single point prediction. We're actually giving you a series of quantiles that you can use to make an informed decision and a decision with a degree of confidence. Um, you shouldn't just be having this one prediction that says, you know, tomorrow we may have 100,000 units. You might wanna know, well, how confident should I be in that prediction? What is the likelihood that an erroneous thing is going to happen and the values are going to be higher or lower? So with P90, what we're saying is that 90% of the time, the predicted value is going to be higher than the actual value. Uh, so the use case canonically for this would be more of like a utilities customer. Uh, with the addition of the custom uh, quantiles now, they are even selecting like P99, P98, so that they're always having the capacity. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you may be a luxury goods manufacturer who always wants to stock out. You almost always want to be guaranteed to get rid of everything, not have any additional resources. P10, uh, which is kind of the other end of that spectrum, makes that possible, saying that uh, from P10, 90% of the time, the actual demand will be higher. So your likelihood of stocking out much more improved there. Uh, and then finally, for many retail contexts, the P50, uh, which is roughly just the average, 50% is a little higher, 50% a little lower. Uh, that tends to trend with where most people would organically think of a point prediction, uh, but we have that available as a quantile as well. So it gives you this idea of based on the business context you have, which evaluated metric is more important for you. And now with the custom one, you can even dial it in a bit more prescriptively. 
but now it's also, you know, we need to understand the error losses and metrics within the forecast. Uh, so error loss functions are really popular for understanding the impact of a forecast against your actual data. Uh, so the loss function is basically how far away was the prediction from the actual observed value, uh, and then especially in a probabilistic scenario from the frequency of that. Uh, and from that we have weighted quantile loss, which is where we take a look at the different quantiles. So uh, by default we ship out P10, P50, P90. So we'll give you a quantile, uh, quantile loss score for each of those. And that says effectively how, um, you know, in aggregate, how wrong is that for that one particular quantile? So you can see that your P90 uh, may be wildly uh, you know, exaggerated, which is what you would expect. However, when you start to look at the P50, you really do wanna make sure that you're seeing something that's dialing in much, much closer. Um, unless you happen to have a wildly erratic product, then maybe it makes sense for something else. Also, the root mean squared error is looking at more of this distribution curve idea uh, of the you know, aggregate of the predictions and how those map to accuracy. Um, so you do, that's actually a really good metric to look at seeing the very first value you get for it and start optimizing that number lower and lower with adding additional related metadata, uh, maybe altering back testing windows, which I'll get into on the next slide. Uh, but you wanna drive that down for a bit, um, but it is also important to know that at a certain point, you're never going to get to a loss of zero or an error of zero, that's not tenable. Um, and if you are, you probably are looking into a scenario where you've overfit and now the model, while seemingly remarkably performant, probably isn't going to perform as well when you actually get into a production scenario. Uh, but when we think about uh, for just metrics and backtesting, this is one of the most important things that you'll do to get started with your forecast. Uh, and the idea here is that when you're creating a forecast, we ask you to specify a forecast horizon. Um, the forecast horizon is what will allow you to say how far into the future your this one prediction is going to run. And it's also where we're actually doing our validation to understand the impact of that forecast. Um, when you're running this forward, let's say for example, you had yearly data chunked into months and you've decided that your forecast horizon is uh, one particular month, so if you basically ran one for a year, you get the next January as your for return forecast. Um, if your backtest window, however, was only one backtest window, your training data would be January to November, and your validation scenario would be in December. Um, December, in almost every case I've seen, is a wildly different month uh, in behavior than other use cases, so your metrics are going to be abysmally terrible, you're not going to be pleased with them, and it's not going to be a very performant forecast overall. So it makes sense to think about whenever you're considering these backtest uh, windows and testing scenarios, how do you actually find a scenario where you're understanding that you're seeing you know, standard use cases and the odd ones, making sure that you both train and validate on those. Um, and at this point, to tell us more about how this works in production, uh, let's bring Sean to the stage. It is. Uh, yeah. You should have like a theme music when you come on. Yeah, right? like the, Enjoy. thank you. Um, how many of you, just show of hands, actually know who Thermo Fisher Scientific is? You all work at Thermo, huh? Yeah. We're one, of, we like to say that we're one of the largest companies that you'll never hear of. Um, we service the science industry as a whole. Um, so we have about 70,000 employees. Um, the company's quite large um, when it comes to our infrastructure. Um, the, the group that I report into has over 85 manufacturing plants across the globe. Um, and one of the things, I lead um, the data analytics team for our supply chain. One of the things I'm most worried about is how do I service the customers across the globe with the diversity of our pro uh, products. But before I get a little deeper into, you know, what is, how does the Amazon forecast get in, into this um, for us, 
Um, I do kind of want to paint a picture for you that you can walk down the thought process with me. Um, I, this is the every, uh, you know, biggest company you'll never hear of. We do like lab freezers. We do beakers. We do molecular biological reagents, cancer um, detection kits. Um, a lot of the stuff that your, your medical researchers are using, your pharmaceuticals are using. We have one product that the common uh, consumer would probably recognize, and it's Nalgene bottles. If you guys ever had the, those water bottles, you, your, your conference may actually be um, using those. But Nalgene is the only customer, like consumer-facing product that we sell that um, you would be most familiar with. So all these things right here, while this would geek out a, a scientist, it probably wouldn't, it doesn't mean much uh, for this team. Um, these are samplings of our products. As a supply chain guy, I have to think through everything through cold chain. Um, like I have products that have to go on negative 80 dry ice all across the world on planes, trains, boats. Um, I missed the planes, trains, and automobile joke. But um, it, it's got uh, temperature sensitive things, like I mentioned. We also have equipment, um, so high sensitivity equipment. Um, each unit can be hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost for our company. Um, and those things clog up my inventories. Now, here's the personal story. So you guys remember like 10 years back, there was a swine flu? Did anybody actually get it, show of hands, if you're not embarrassed to admit? One person, two people, three people. You remember it was like a world pandemic, like everybody was going to get it, and well, my company at the time was in Vitrogen, which was one of these product brands, actually had the only kit that the CDC and the World Health Organization had validated to see if you actually had it. So you three guys actually got um, tested for by our kit. Well, as a company, that made us money hand over fist. We couldn't make enough of this stuff. We loved that they said it was a pandemic. We weren't excited that it potentially was a real health problem, but luckily it wasn't. Um, but as we were sitting there trying to figure out, well, how do we prep for this? We had no idea this was coming. So we have patients on the other sides of our kits that need to get um, treatment. So generally what we do in our, our supply chain is because we have a patient at the other end, which is a life or death situation, we'll invest in inventory. So my company, my group specifically, sits on about $1.5 billion of inventory to make sure that we have things for patients when they need it or with the researcher who's going to make that medical breakthrough. Well, for me, if we look at kind of a not-as-cool version of that graph you saw earlier that Rohit presented, um, for me, when I can't afford to understock, so I have to overstock. Well, for me, overstocking and getting that forecast wrong means that I invest more and more money and lock it up in inventories. So for me, when I can get a better and better forecast, I can actually start actually reducing the amount of money that I have locked up in these inventories. So when I look at traditional statistical forecasting softwares, they do very similar kind of graphs. They take statistical, um, or they take the historical sales information, and then by plotting out using certain statistical models, they will give a forecast. Well, what if I'm trying to predict the next flu, or a next wave of Ebola, or things where this is real world health critique, if that was the example of you know, when I needed to have uh, kits ready for scientists to help with these uh, pandemics, that forecast doesn't represent what actually happened at all. 
I would miss it. And so not only is there an implication on me financially, because I'll miss the revenue, but it also is a huge impact for potentially the world being able to respond to these crises. So we set out always continuous improvement. Um, one of the things we wanted to do is try out working with our AWS partners. Um, how do we use this Amazon forecast? Um, we saw that tagline, 50% improvement in forecast accuracies, and we went for it. And so um, we worked with the team. We used three years of our sales history for 158,000 of our SKUs. Um, there was some pre-processing of the data. It was, uh, we did some removing of financial adjustments and SKUs with less than a certain amount of transactions. Um, we did add one sales, uh, uh, sorry, one time series related data point, and that was our average selling price. Um, and then the team got to training the models, and uh, we focused only on 20,000 SKUs as a focus group in the 158,000, um, because those are the ones that we actually apply forecasts to and drive manufacturing against. Um, then we did that back testing that Chris was talking about. Um, and let me show you some of the results. Okay, so these products that you're seeing on the board, really these are the highlight of our highest moving products. And so these are the ones that we always sell, things that go, um, should be the easiest to predict because the pattern's repeatable. But you can see in our, our current methodologies, we're getting 70s, 60s in those categories. Um, and, you know, a lot of us go, well, that's the best we have. But now, even just using statistical model, I'm sorry, time series, historical data, and average selling price as a base, we were able to now get into the upper 80s. And so 20% improvement in our top sellers, that's a huge improvement, and that's just the start. Now, the other side of the coin, well, what are the stuff you can't predict, the stuff that we're really bad at? Um, so this is the other set, the ones where we don't do well forecasting currently. Well, what can we bring to the table? Well, what this does is it doesn't get you into the 80s, but it definitely turns that negative one um, and makes it positive again. Now, keeping in mind, what I'm trying to do is I'm padding my inventories to be able to meet these, these data points, but that's costly. That's a costly strategy. So what I can do is I can eliminate if I have more confidence in what I actually need, even if it's 10% off a base of a 10% accuracy and I get down to 20%, I have that much more confidence to be able to remove a layer and invest that money in more R&D and more capabilities that the company can leverage in other areas. So here's some real, real data that came out of that on some of our SKUs. Um, this is, uh, if you look at the graph, it might be a little hard to read. There's the historical information is all, and the actual is in black. Um, our current tool is in red. And what you can, it's kind of harder to see because it's so spot on, is the um, Amazon forecast line. And it's a blue line that's sitting right on top. And so if I was going to predict a flu, pretending that this was the kit that we used to do that, and I was going to predict, based on that time series information, um, what I need, my old system would have said, no, it's going down. You don't need that. But Amazon forecast caught it, predicted the spike almost perfectly, and allowed me to build confidence in my team to be able to actually execute 
on building these things when our current system would have told us to start slowing it down. So to me, that's remarkable. Um, just more of the same, different SKUs. Um, you can see where historically our system was telling us to behave a certain way and what Amazon forecast was able to generate. And the same thing. So um, what uh, this is potentially millions of dollars of benefit for us is we can remove layers of inventory that we don't need because we know it's go what's going to happen. Um, and the, as they mentioned a couple times, for us, this is a cheap solution. If I'm thinking about training, you know, 158,000 SKUs and actually we only use 20,000 forecasts, well, the, mon the money doesn't, it's really, that's not a big number for us, especially when some of our other solutions can be millions of dollars for installs. So it, these kind of things, this is a no-brainer for us. Now, the one thing I do want to highlight is this transition. We, we did go from pretty good. You know, we had a good system. You saw the 70s, 60s and 70s in our, our forecast accuracy. And that was after a lot of work getting that model up and going. What we were able to see by stepping into this world was that there was a game changer. And so in this, what I'm really highlighting is the idea that you can go from what you think is pretty good, and you're making slight improvements, but you'll never make a game changer. When we were able to step into this type of world with our partners in AWS is we're able to now raise the bar, go through a learning curve, you know, there is a little valley there, but then really accelerate and launch up to the next level. So um, I really do want to just highlight before I bring uh, Rohit back up, the collaboration that AWS was able to bring to our team. Um, we were great beneficiaries of their engagement, their partnership. They helped us through the process. Um, I don't know if it's just because I'm a really nice guy and people want to help me or I just look like I need a lot of help. But um, it was a, a great partnership and we got a lot of good benefit out of it. So with that, Rohit, talk through forecasting. Come on, man. I'll do a little job. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, Sean. So, uh, you know, I hope, uh, you know, Sean's uh, use case and, you know, Thermo Fisher and Sean have been great partners as well, kind of, you know, validates the value that, you know, something like Amazon Forecast can bring in. So I think it was, uh, it was great to go through Sean's example. So thanks, Sean. So just to round off our presentation and leave hopefully plenty of time for questions. So, so I'll just talk a little bit about, you know, how Forecast works in production. And then we'll talk briefly about, you know, the partners that you guys uh, could engage with on any forecasting, uh, you know, uh, projects. So uh, in terms of forecast and production, I mean, it's a really simplified version. Uh, we, have, uh, we have an actual architecture set up in the following slide. Uh, but it basically, uh, I mean, there are uh, four main steps. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, as, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, as, you know, Sean was mentioning, I think data pre-processing is where I think you would spend a fair amount of time just collating and, you know, uh, and ensuring the data is in the right format and you identify the right features that are useful. So this will take some time. But once you have the data set up in S3, uh, and after that, things become pretty seamless, and the next step is basically the create predictor API that we talked about. This is where you're going to train your model, uh, you know, define your metrics. Uh, and so there's a lot of iteration back and forth between the data
data ingestion and model training because you might look at your metrics, uh, the metrics might not you know, immediately you know, work for you, you might have to go back, you might have to do some feature engineering, you might have to add additional features. You know, as we had established before, like deep learning does you know, automate a lot of featureization, but adding additional signaling uh, based on business knowledge is always, always beneficial. So there is a little bit of iteration that goes back and forth. Once you do establish a model that works, uh, then what happens is you run create forecast and that basically hosts your model. And then that model can be used to generate or do your inferencing on demand. So in your production setup, you basically can cut off this entire step. So this step is basically in your POC, where you do data ingestion, create prediction, and create forecast. But once you have the model established, then you essentially pretty much update your data set uh, using uh, the data set import job. You have an API that does that, or to the console. And you keep updating your data set, and you can keep using your existing model to generate new inferences. And so you can completely bypass this step, and then that's, that's why the training time drastically drops in the production setup. So what we've noticed with most of our customers is uh, they do um, uh, you know, create prediction or evaluation on, a, on an off-need basis, mostly in the every two weeks or every month. It totally depends on your use case. So you do have to kind of evaluate or keep a track of your metrics to see if your accuracy is still on, on track as you keep generating these new inferences. And then if need be, you know, kind of retrain the model, establish a new model because the signaling in your data might have changed. And then, you know, and then go back to the step where you're just, you know, running between data ingestion and uh, create uh, and kind of uh, the create forecast or inference. With that said, um, this is an example of, uh, you know, one of our customers is actually an internal customer. So, oh, sorry. One of our customers is uh, an internal customer, so Amazon Redshift is actually using our service uh, in a production setup for cluster management. So their main use case is they have to manage EC2 instances uh, and they have to keep a cash pool so that the latency is low and you know, customer requests can be met immediately. And they need to forecast the cash pool size. So that's what they're using our service for. And if you see their setup, uh, they're also interacting with other AWS's, AWS services to put this into production. So essentially, uh, you know, they have this demand publisher which has the historical demand, uh, which kind of feeds the data into an S3 bucket. And, uh, and once this data is in the S3 bucket, you know, then it's ported over into Amazon Forecast. And within Forecast, uh, they have automated two steps uh, because the way they do generate forecasts is that um, they, they use the same model to keep generating forecasts on, an, on a daily basis for the next one day. So they, uh, they get new data, which is updated, and they rerun the Create Forecast API, and then that dumps a new export job into the S3 bucket here. So in order, order to automate this, they have set up two cron jobs that kind of automate that using uh, step and lambda functions. So there's uh, some level of automation using other AWS services that they have achieved. And then finally what happens is once the data resides in the S3 bucket here, they export data, then they have an ETL, uh, a, lambda, a lambda that uh, achieves that, and then that data is posted into DynamoDB. This is where they reside, and then that, that data is then passed to kind of manage their EC2 uh, uh, cash pool. And they've seen, uh, you know, sub so right now they're, you know, they're, they're slowly uh, rolling out the service, and they've seen substantial improvements as much as, you know, in the high, uh, you know, in terms of percentage improvements, in the, it's in the high teens, if not higher, and uh, potentially could save them a lot of money from an operational cost perspective. So this is one sample architecture that, you know, Amazon Redshift has put into uh, production. 
I think uh, with, the, with the last slide, I think Sean alluded to this as well. Uh, I think in some of these scenarios, you know, as you know, Sean talked about, you do go through these valleys where you know, when, once you're ingrained in a particular methodology of working with your forecasting, it does require some additional help uh, you know, to get folks to use the service and you know, try out something new. So we, we have established a rich group of partners who are pretty, uh, pretty adept at forecasting in general and have used our service. Uh, and so these are some of the folks that we are actively working with and who can help you guys out with any of your POCs or use cases. I think in Sean's example, I think they worked very closely with Tensor IT and Tensor IT was immensely valuable for them. And I don't know if there are any partners around. If so, if they can raise their hands, you can you know, speak to them afterwards as well. But you know, working with a partner can get you through some of those, uh, you know, Kind of some of those you know, difficult scenarios, especially when it comes to data pre-processing and collating your data and some of the model, modeling work that you need to do upfront before putting into production. I think with that, we have, uh, oh, I have this uh, last slide. I think this is pretty much uh, you know, self-training, uh, I guess, uh, resources from AWS that you can use to kind of train yourself. So I think uh, there are a bunch of resources online where, and you can also get yourself certified. So. I think this was pretty much our last last slide. Uh, so I, I guess thank you all. I, we really appreciate you taking the time and coming out when there are so many other sessions to attend. Uh, with that, I think I'll call back maybe Chris and Sean over to the stage as well, and uh, we can take any questions that you guys might have about the service, the Thermo Fisher engagement, or any, anything on top of your mind. So thanks all.